Chapter Twelve of the Border Legion by Zane Gray. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Those bitter words of Cleves, as if he mocked himself, were the last Joan heard, and they rang in her ears and seemed to reverberate through her dazed mind like a knell of doom. She lay there, all blackness about her, weighed upon by an insupportable burden, and she prayed that day might never dawn for her. A nightmare of oblivion ended at last, with her eyes opening to the morning light. She was cold and stiff. She had lain uncovered all the long hours of night. She had not moved a finger since she had fallen upon the bed, crushed by those bitter words with which Cleve had consented to join Kells's legion. Since then Joan felt that she had lived years. She could not remember a single thought she might have had during those black hours. Nevertheless, a decision had been formed in her mind, and it was that today she would reveal herself to Jim Cleve if it cost both their lives. Death was infinitely better than the suspense and fear and agony she had endured. And as for Jim, it would at least save him from crime. Joan got up, a little dizzy and unsteady upon her feet. Her hands appeared clumsy and shaky. All the blood in her seemed to surge from heart to brain, and it hurt her to breathe. Removing her mask, she bathed her face and combed her hair. At first she conceived an idea to go out without her face covered. But she thought better of it. Cleve's reckless defiance had communicated itself to her. She could not now be stopped. Kells was gay and excited that morning. He paid her compliments. He said they would soon be out of this lonely gulch, and she would see the sight of her life, a gold strike. She would see men wager a fortune on the turn of a card, lose, laugh, and go back to the digging. He said he would take her to Sacramento and Frisco and buy her everything a girl could desire. He was wild, voluble, unreasoning, obsessed by the anticipated fulfillment of his dream. It was rather late in the morning, and there were a dozen or more men in and around the cabin, all as excited as Kells. Preparations were already underway for the expected journey to the gold field. Packs were being laid out, overhauled and repacked. Saddles and bridles and weapons were being worked over. Clothes were being awkwardly mended. Horses were being shod, and the job was as hard and disagreeable for men as for horses. Whenever a rider swung up the slope, and one came every now and then, all the robbers would leave off their tasks and start eagerly for the newcomer. The name Jesse Smith was on everybody's lips. Any hour he might be expected to arrive and corroborate Blicky's alluring tale. Joan saw, or imagined she saw, that the glances in the eyes of these men were yellow, like gold fire. She had seen miners and prospectors, whose eyes shone with a strange glory of light that gold inspired, but never as those of Kells's bandit legion. Presently Joan discovered that, despite the excitement, her effect upon them was more marked than ever, and by a difference that she was quick to feel but she could not tell what this difference was, how their attitude had changed. Then she set herself the task of being useful. 
First she helped Bate Wood. He was roughly kind. She had not realized that there was sadness about her until he whispered, Don't be downcast, miss. Maybe it'll come out right yet. That amazed Joan. Then his mysterious winks and glances, the sympathy she felt in him, all attested to some kind of a change. She grew keen to learn, but she did not know how. She felt the change in all the men. Then she went to Pierce, and with all a woman's craft, she exaggerated the silent sadness that had brought quick response from Wood. Red Pierce was even quicker. He did not seem to regard her proximity as that of a feminine thing which roused the devil in him. Pierce could not be other than coarse and vulgar. But there was pity in him. Joan sensed pity and some other quality still beyond her. This lieutenant of the bandit Kells was just as mysterious as Wood. Joan mended a great jagged rent in his buckskin shirt. Pierce appeared proud of her work. He tried to joke. He said amiable things. Then, as she finished, he glanced furtively around. He pressed her hand. I had a sister once, he whispered. And then, with a dark and baleful hate, Kells, he'll get his over in the gold camp. Joan turned away from Pierce, still more amazed. Some strange, deep undercurrent was working here. There had been unmistakable hate for Kells in his dark look and a fierce implication in his portent of fatality. What had caused this sudden impersonal interest in her situation? What was the meaning of the subtle animosity toward the bandit leader? Was there no honor among evil men banded together for evil deeds? Were jealousy, ferocity, hate, and faithlessness fostered by this wild and evil border life, ready at an instant's notice to break out? Joan divined the vain and futile and tragical nature of Kell's great enterprise. It could not succeed. It might bring a few days or weeks of fame, of blood-stained gold, of riotous gambling, but by its very nature it was doomed. It embraced failure and death. Joan went from man to man, keener now, on the track of this inexplicable change, sweetly and sadly friendly to each, and it was not till she encountered the little Frenchman that the secret was revealed. Frenchy was of a different race. Deep in the fiber of his being inculcated a sentiment, a feeling long submerged in the darkness of a wicked life. And now that something came fleeting out of the depths, and it was respect for a woman. To Joan it was a flash of light. Yesterday these ruffians despised her. Today they respected her. So they had believed what she had so desperately flung at Jim Cleve. They believed her good. They pitied her. They respected her. They responded to her effort to turn a boy back from a bad career. They were bandits, desperados, murderers lost. But each remembered in her a mother or a sister. What each might have felt or done had he possessed her, as Kells possessed her, did not alter the case as it stood. A strange inconsistency of character made them hate Kells for what they might not have hated in themselves. Her appeal to Cleve, her outburst of truth, her youth and misfortune, had discovered to each a human quality. 
as in Kells, something of nobility still lingered, ghost among his ruined ideals. So in the others some goodness remained. Joan sustained an uplifting divination. No man was utterly bad. Then came the hideous image of the giant Golden, the utter absence of soul in him, and she shuddered. Then came the thought of Jim Cleve, who had not believed her, who had bitterly made the fatal step, who might in the strange reversion of his character be beyond influence. And it was at this precise moment when this thought rose to counteract the hope revived by the changed attitude of the men that Joan looked out to see Jim Cleve sauntering up, careless, untidy, a cigarette between his lips, blue blotches on his white face, upon him the stamp of abandonment. Joan suffered a contraction of heart that benumbed her breast. She stood a moment battling with herself. She was brave enough, desperate enough, to walk straight up to Cleve, remove her mask, and say, I'm Joan. But that must be a last resource. She had no plan, yet she might force an opportunity to see Cleve alone. A shout rose above the hubbub of voices. A tall man was pointing across the gulch, where dust clouds showed above the willows. Men crowded round him, all gazing in the direction of his hand, all talking at once. "'Jess Smith's horse, I swear!' shouted the tall man. "'Kells, come out here!' Kells appeared, dark and eager, at the door, and nimbly he leaped to the excited group. Pierce and Wood and others followed. "'What's up?' called the bandit. "'Hello. Who's that riding bareback?' "'He's sure cutting the wind,' said Wood. "'Blicky!' exclaimed the tall man. "'Kells, there's news. I seen Jess's horse.' Kells let out a strange, exultant cry. The excited talk among the men gave place to a subdued murmur, then subsided. Blicky was running a horse up the road, hanging low over him like an Indian. He clattered to the bench, scattered the men in all directions. The fiery horse plunged and pounded. Blicky was gray of face and wild of aspect. Jesse's come, he yelled hoarsely at Kells. He just fell off his horse, all in. He wants you and all the gang. He's seen a million dollars in gold dust. Absolute silence ensued after that last swift and startling speech. It broke to a commingling of yells and shouts. Blicky wheeled his horse, and Kells started on a run, and there was a stampede and rush after him. Joan grasped her opportunity. She had seen all this excitement, but she had not lost sight of Cleve. He got up from a log and started after the others. Joan flew to him, grasped him, startled him with the suddenness of her onslaught. But her tongue seemed cloven to the roof of her mouth, her lips weak and mute. Twice she strove to speak. Meet me, there, among the pines, right away, she whispered, with breathless earnestness. It's life or death for me. As she released his arm, he snatched at her mask, but she eluded him. Who are you? he flashed. Kells and his men were piling into the willows, leaping the brook, hurrying on. They had no thought but to get to Jesse Smith, to hear of the gold strike. That news to them 
was as finding gold in the earth was to honest miners. Come, cried Joan. She hurried away to the corner of the cabin, then halted to see if he was following. He was indeed. She ran round behind the cabin, out on the slope, halting at the first trees. Cleve came striding after her. She ran on, beginning to pant and stumble. The way he strode, the white grimness of him frightened her. What would he do? Again she went on, but not running now. They were straggling pines and spruces that soon hid the cabins. Beyond a few rods was a dense clump of pines, and she made for that. As she reached it, she turned fearfully. Only Cleve was in sight. She uttered a sob of mingled relief, joy, and thankfulness. She and Cleve had not been observed. They would be out of sight in this little pine grove. At last she could reveal herself, tell him why she was there, that she loved him, that she was as good as ever she had been. Why was she shaking like a leaf in the wind? She saw Cleve through a blur. He was almost running now. Involuntarily, she fled into the grove. It was dark and cool. It smelled sweetly of pine. There were narrow aisles and little sunlit glades. She hurried on till the fallen tree blocked her passage. Here she turned. She would wait. The tree was good to lean against. There came Cleve, a dark, stalking shadow. She did not remember him like that. He entered the glade. Speak again, he said thickly. Either I'm drunk or crazy. But Joan could not speak. She held out her hands that shook, swept them to her face, tore at the mask. Then, with a gasp, she stood revealed. If she had stabbed him straight through the heart, he could not have been more ghastly. Joan saw him in all the terrible transfiguration that came over him. But she had no conceptions, no thought, of what constituted that change. After that check to her mind came a surge of joy. Jim, Jim, it's Joan, she breathed, with lips almost mute. Joan, he gasped, and the sound of his voice seemed to be the passing from horrible doubt to certainty. Like a panther, he leaped at her, fastened a powerful hand at the neck of her blouse, jerked her to her knees, and began to drag her. Joan fought his iron grasp. The twisting and tightening of her blouse choked her utterance. He did not look down upon her, but she could see him, the rigidity of his body set in violence, the awful shade upon his face, the upstanding hair on his head. He dragged her as if she had been an empty sack. Like a beast, he was seeking a dark place, a hole to hide her. She was strangling, a distorted sight, made objects dim. And now she struggled instinctively. Suddenly the clutch at her neck loosened. Gaspingly came the intake of air to her lungs. The dark red veil left her eyes. She was still upon her knees. Cleve stood before her like a gray-faced demon, holding his gun level, ready to fire. Pray for your soul and mine. Jim, oh Jim! Will you kill yourself, too? Yes, but pray, girl, quick. Then I pray to God, not for my soul, but just for one more moment of life. To tell you, Jim. 
Cleve's face worked, and the gun began to waver. Her reply had been a stroke of lightning in the dark abyss of his jealous agony. Joan saw it, and she raised her quivering face, and she held up her arms to him. To tell you, Jim, she entreated. What, he rasped out, that I'm innocent, that I'm as good a girl as ever, ever. Let me tell you. Oh, you're mistaken, terribly mistaken. Now I know I'm drunk. You, Joan Randall. You in that rig. You, the companion of Jack Kells, not even his wife. The jest of these foul-mouthed bandits. And you say you're innocent? Good? When you refuse to leave him? I was afraid to go. Afraid you'd be killed, she moaned, beating her breast. It must have seemed madness to him, a monstrous nightmare, a delirium of drink, that Joan Randall was there on her knees in a brazen male attire, lifting her arms to him, beseeching him not to spare her life, but to believe in her innocence. Joan burst into swift, broken utterance. Only listen, I trailed you out, twenty miles from Hoadley. I met Roberts. He came with me. He lamed his horse. We had the camp. Kells rode down on us. He had two men. They camped there. Next morning, he killed Roberts, made off with me. Then he killed his men, just to have me alone to himself. We crossed a range, camped in the canyon. There he attacked me, and I, I shot him. But I couldn't leave him to die. Joan hurried on with her narrative, gaining strength and eloquence as she saw the weakening of Cleve. First he said I was his wife to fool that Golden, and the others, she went on. He meant to save me from them. But they guessed or found out. Kells forced me into these bandit clothes. He's depraved somehow, and I had to wear something. Kells hasn't harmed me. No one has. I have influence over him. He can't resist it. He tried to force me to marry him, and he's tried to give up to his evil intentions, but he can't. There's good in him. I can make him feel it. Oh, he loves me, and I'm not afraid of him any more. It has been a terrible time for me, Jim, but I'm still the same girl you knew you used to. Cleve dropped the gun, and he waved his hand before his eyes as if to dispel a blindness. But why, why, he asked incredulously, why did you leave Hodley? That's forbidden. You knew the risk. Joan gazed steadily up at him, to see the whiteness slowly fade out of his face. She had imagined it would be an overcoming of pride to betray her love, but she had been wrong. The moment was so full, so overpowering, that she seemed dumb. He had ruined himself for her and out of that ruin had come the glory of her love. Perhaps it was all too late, but at least he would know that for love of him she had in turn sacrificed herself. Jim, she whispered, and with the first word of that betrayal, a thrill, a tremble, a rush went over her, and all her blood seemed hot at her neck and face. That night when you kissed me I was furious, but the moment you had gone I repented. I must have cared for you then, but I didn't know. Remorse seized me, and I set out on your trail to save you from yourself. And with the pain and fear and terror, there was sometimes 
the sweetness of your kisses. Then I knew I cared. And with the added days of suspense and agony, all that told me of your throwing your life away, there came love. Such love as otherwise I'd never have been big enough for. I meant to find you, to save you, to send you home. I have found you, maybe too late to save your life, but not your soul, thank God. That's why I've been strong enough to hold back Kells. I love you, Jim. I love you. I couldn't tell you enough. My heart is bursting. Say you believe me. Say you know I'm good, true to you. You're Joan. And kiss me, like you did that night when we were such blind fools. A boy and a girl who didn't know, who couldn't tell. Oh, the sadness of it. Kiss me, Jim, before I drop at your feet, if only you believe. Joan was blinded by tears and whispering she knew not what when Cleve broke from his trance and caught her to his breast. She was fainting, hovering at the border of unconsciousness, when his violence held her back from oblivion. She seemed wrapped to him and held so tightly that there was no breath in her body, no motion, no stir of pulse. That vague, dreamy moment passed. She heard his husky, broken accents. She felt the pound of his heart against her breast. And he began to kiss her as she had begged him to. She quickened to thrilling, revivifying life. And she lifted her face and clung round his neck and kissed him, blindly, sweetly, passionately, with all her heart and soul in her lips, wanting only one thing in the world, to give that which she had denied him. Joan, 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 he murmured, when their lips parted. Am I dreaming, drunk, or crazy? Oh, Jim, I'm real. You have me in your arms, she whispered. Dear Jim, kiss me again, and say you believe me. Believe you? I'm out of my mind with joy. You loved me. You followed me. And that idea of mine, only an absurd, vile suspicion. I might have known had I been sane. There, old Jim, enough of madness. We've got the plan. Remember where we are. There's Kells and this terrible situation to meet. He stared at her, slowly realizing, and then it was his turn to shake. My God, I've forgotten. I'll have to kill you now. A reaction set in. If he had any self-control left, he lost it. And like a boy whose fling into manhood had exhausted his courage, he sank beside her and buried his face against her. And he cried in a low, tense, heartbroken way. For Joan, it was terrible to hear him. She held his hand to her breast and implored him not to weaken now. But he was stricken with remorse. He had run off like a coward. He had brought her to this calamity, and he could not rise under it. Joan realized that he had long labored under stress of morbid emotion. Only a supreme effort could lift him out of it to strong and reasoning equilibrium, and that must come from her. She pushed him away from her and held him back, where he must see her, and white-hot with passionate purpose, she kissed him. Jim Cleve, if you're nerve enough to be bad, you're nerve enough to save the girl who loves you, who belongs to you. He raised his face, and it flashed from red to white. He caught the subtlety of her antithesis. 
with the very two words which had driven him away under the sting of cowardice she uplifted him and with all that was tender and faithful and passionate in her meaning of surrender she settled at once and forever the doubt of his manhood he arose trembling in every limb like a dog he shook himself his breast heaved the shades of scorn and bitterness and abandon might never have haunted his face in that moment he had passed from the reckless and wild sick rage of a weakling to the stern realizing courage of a man his suffering on this wild border had developed a different fiber of character and at the great moment the climax when his moral force hung balanced between elevation and destruction the woman had called to him and her unquenchable spirit passed into him there's only one thing to get away he said yes but that's a terrible risk she replied we've a good chance now i'll get horses we can slip away while they're all excited no no i daren't risk so much kells would find out at once he'd be like a hound on our trail but that's not all i've a horror of golden i can't explain i feel it he would know he would take the trail i'd never try to escape with golden in camp jim do you know what he's done he's a cannibal i hate the sight of him i tried to kill him i wish i had killed him i'm never safe while he's near then i will kill him hush you'll not be desperate unless you have to be listen i'm safe with kells for the present and he's friendly to you let us wait i'll keep trying to influence him I have won the friendship of some of his men. We'll stay with him, travel with him. Surely we have a better chance to escape after we reach that gold camp. You must play your part, but do it without drinking and fighting. I couldn't bear that. We'll see each other somehow. We'll plan. Then we'll take the first chance to get away. We might never have a better chance than we've got right now, he remonstrated. It may seem so to you, but I know. I haven't watched these ruffians for nothing. I tell you Golden has split with Kells because of me. I don't know how I know, and I think I'd die of terror out on the trail with two hundred miles to go and that gorilla after me. But, Joan, if once we got away, Golden would never take you alive, said Jim earnestly. So you needn't fear that. I've an uncanny horror of him. It's as if he were a gorilla, and would take me off even if I were dead. No, Jim, let us wait. Let me select a time I can do it. Trust me. Oh, Jim, now that I've saved you from being a bandit, I can do anything. I can fool Kells or Pierce or Wood, any of them, except Golden. If Kells had to choose now between trailing you and rushing for the gold camp, which would he do? He'd trail me, she said. But Kells is crazy over gold. He has two passions, to steal gold and to gamble with it. That may be, but he'd go after me first. So would Golden. We can't ride these hills as they do. We don't know the trails, the water. We'd get lost. We'd be caught. And somehow I know that Golden and his gang would find us first. You're probably right, Joan, replied Cleve. But you condemn me to a living death. To let you out of my sight with Kells or any of them, it'll be worse almost than my life was before. 
But, Jim, I'll be safe, she entreated. It's the better choice of two evils. Our lives depend on reason, waiting, planning. And, Jim, I want to live for you. My brave darling, to hear you say that, he exclaimed, with deep emotion, when I never expected to see you again. But the past is past. I begin over from this hour. I'll be what you want. Do what you want. Joan seemed irresistibly drawn to him again, and the supplication, as she lifted her blushing face, and the yielding were perilously sweet. Jim, kiss me and hold me, the way you did that night. And it was not Joan who first broke that embrace. Find my mask, she said. Cleve picked up his gun, and presently the piece of black felt. He held it as if it were a deadly thing. Put it on me. He slipped the cord over her head and adjusted the mask so the holes came right for her eyes. Joan, it hides the, the goodness of you, he cried. No one can see your eyes now. No one will look at your face. That rig shows your... shows you off so. It's not decent. But, oh, Lord, I'm bound to confess how pretty, how devilish, how seductive you are. And I hate it. Jim, I hate it, too, but we must stand it. Try not to shame me any more. And now, good-bye. Keep watch for me, as I will for you, all the time. Joan broke from him and glided out of the grove, away under the straggling pines along the slope. She came upon her horse, and she led him back to the corral. Many of the horses had strayed. There was no one at the cabin, but she saw men striding up the slope. Kells in the lead. She had been fortunate. Her absence could hardly have been noted. She had just strength left to get to her room, where she fell upon the bed, weak and trembling, and dizzy and unutterably grateful at her deliverance from the hateful, unbearable falsity of her situation. End of chapter 12